What kind of lifestyle have the Kim leaders lived, and how do they pull it off? How did North Korea do economically after the Korean War? What is the Songbun's caste system, and how did it affect all lives in North Korea? What is Juje, and why did Kim Il-sung believe in it? Why did the economy collapse in the late 1980s? How did widespread famine affect nearly every person in North Korea? We will learn the answers to these questions and more in today's episode, part two of North Korea 101, or the last 100-ish years in North Korea. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm back with another installment in this series of the last 100 years history in a few high-profile countries that make a lot of news right now. Last time we covered Taiwan, and today we are going to do North Korea Part 2. Next up, we have Iran. If you haven't listened to Part 1 of the Korea episodes, please do that. I'm going to go right into things without a whole lot of re-explaining of who's who and what's what. So start with Part 1. All right, let's get into the North Korea post-1953 history. We have Kim Il-sung, who is becoming the supreme leader. In the late 1940s, he's created a cult of personality, and we'll see here that he spends the next 30 years mastering this art of kind of intense indoctrination of the people through propaganda, education, and ultimately fear tactics. Let's first talk about how North Korea did as a new nation right after the Korean War. North Korea was built on the idea of communism, which at its very essence is a theory that the government regulates the economy, so people live in a more communal way than an individualistic way. North Korea became a totalitarian dictatorship, so meaning a dictator who had total control over the lives of the people, and it had a communist economy. So the government controlled almost all aspects of people's lives in many ways. One of the aspects of the theory of communism is that society should be classless. So no upper class or lower class or in-between class. There would be public ownership with full social equality for all members of society. However, that's not really how things turned out in North Korea. The theory of communism and the reality ended up being very different. In North Korea, one of the first things put into place was the Songbun caste system, which was put into place sometime between 1957 and 1960. The word Songbun translates to background. So it's the idea that your paternal ancestors created your current status in society. It was used by Kim to isolate and purge his enemies and to reward his supporters. This is basically a caste system. So obviously not classless, right? Where the nation was divided into three major classes with subcategories in each one. So first class was called the core. These were the trusted people. They were trusted by Kim, his family members, loyal revolutionaries who were anti-Japanese and anti-American. 
The second class was called the wavering class. This was kind of like the normal North Koreans who had been peasants and laborers but weren't necessarily affiliated with the enemy. And then there was the hostile class. These are the people who had family members who defected or were former South Korean prisoners of war or who collaborated with the Japanese or South Koreans in any way. It also included landowners, intellectuals, religious leaders, aristocrats, people of a higher class. A lot of the population were considered hostile, and many were relocated to more impoverished areas or more isolated areas in the cold, cold north part of North Korea. There was about 1% of the hostile class that was just permanently banished to labor camps that were modeled after the Soviet gulag. And your caste or your class was decided at birth based on your inheritance and also the standing of your parents and grandparents, what they did before you were born. So let's run a scenario here. If you had a grandpa who was a South Korean prisoner of war who got stuck in North Korea post-war, you were immediately placed into the hostile class, even though you might not have even known your grandpa. Even though Koreans who had chosen to come back to North Korea from Japan, who had made the choice to be communists, they were often often lumped into the hostile class, or definitely the wavering class, did not make it into the core class. Your class affected all aspects of your existence in North Korean society, including your access to education or housing, who you could marry, employment, your food rations, because everything was controlled by the government, where you could or could not live, again, whether or not you could join the workers' party, and again, it just controlled every aspect of life. Even if you worked really hard and showed loyalty to the government, your potential was limited by your caste. You would never live in the capital of Pyongyang or become an official or get the imported food or go to the elite schools and universities. And it became unwise to marry someone from a lower category because it would taint your standing and impact the opportunities for your kids. There was also a three-generation rule. So breaking class status would impact your posterity for three generations. This was like a serious deterrent to being difficult or defecting. Because if you defected, it would affect your posterity for three generations. Plus, people weren't informed of their classifications. And so children began to kind of figure out what class they were because they would work really hard and then they wouldn't get ahead or have any opportunity. The hostile class were also watched closely by their neighbors. As one book put it, quote, North Koreans were organized into what was called the Inminban, literally people's group. These were cooperatives of 20 or so families whose job it is to keep tabs on one another and to run the neighborhood. The Inminban have an elected leader, usually a middle-aged woman, who reported anything suspicious to higher-ranking authorities. It was almost impossible for a North Korean of low rank to improve his status or to keep it a secret. Personal files were locked away in offices, and the only mobility within the class system was downward. End of quote. So this is why some families who came over from Japan were able to hold on to their wealth. They had to keep it under wraps and definitely didn't flaunt it, but they quietly kept it without being reported, which is kind of amazing considering this inminban. So classes were a huge deal. In North Korea. In terms of setting up the government, the powerful elites or the core class in North Korea began adopting a strategy for collective farms and state enterprises. Maybe this is ringing a bell from our China episodes. It tried, this core class tried to drive economic growth through forced saving, but there was little incentive to managers of factories and farmers to become more productive. And so the government had massive campaigns to help motivate the workers to meet output targets. They had work teams, just like we learned about in China, 
since so much of the area had been destroyed during the Korean War, buildings and neighborhoods had to be built. And the less desirable neighborhoods were built near the mines and were kind of these harmonica houses. And other places, there were apartment buildings made. They were extremely tall. Some of them were 18 stories. And they would have these loudspeakers for individual units to broadcast announcements for the community. North Korea began isolating itself very quickly as well, even from Moscow and Beijing, which really made trade and foreign investment more difficult. But during the late 1950s until the 1970s, North Korea actually had a standard higher standard of living than the South, which suffered a lot of political and economic crises in their change into democracy. Kim Il-sung had a philosophy called Juche, which is J-U-C-H-E, or Juche. Kind of hard for me to pronounce. I don't speak Korean. But what this focused on was basically Korean nationalism or extreme patriotism and self-reliance. It was a, na- it was a, he was, Kim Il-sung was a nationalist in the extreme. And he taught people that they were the chosen people. They didn't need to rely on any other nation, especially their more powerful nation neighbors like China or Japan or Russia. And he told them that the South Koreans were a disgrace for depending on the United States for support. And this bolstered his position as the only leader as well. He instructed them to not give in to their individual wills, instead to submit to the collective. You know, the collective couldn't go off willy-nilly doing whatever the people chose through some democratic process. The people had to follow an absolute supreme ruler without question, which, of course, was Kim. He also used Juje to motivate the people and to help people to worship him because he positioned himself as the protector of this way of life. So during this time when things were kind of stable in North Korea, murals were painted all over all over the country. Here he was, pink-cheeked and smiling and surrounded by children who were adoring him and toys and bicycles are in the background. And as Barbara Demick put it in her book, Nothing to Envy, she quotes, Kim Il-sung didn't want to be Joseph Stalin. He wanted to be Santa Claus. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. He wanted to be revered as a father figure with respect and love, which goes back to Confucian beliefs. Just like all regimes ever, Statues went up, portraits of the great leader went into every room, in every office. But what made him unique was he made his cult of personality a true religion. He closed all churches, banned the Bible, deported religious people. It's not an exaggeration to say that he became like a god. As he built this cult and the Songbun caste system, I want to tell you a little bit about what life was like for the average North Korean during this time. So making a sarcastic remark about Kim Il-sung or a nostalgic remark about South Korea could get you sent to a labor camp. Talking about the Korean War and who started it was off limits. If anyone remembered that the North Koreans started the war and talked about it, they would be sent off. So people learned to keep their mouth shut. Women were expected to work and often worked extremely long days and then were required to do more work at home. Their children were mostly raised in daycare centers, in factories. Since 20% of the men in North Korea were in the military, they had a huge military. The women were expected to keep things running. And in the 1960s, North Korea had the fourth largest military in the world and were told just about all the evils in the world were due to Japan and the United States of America. Most North Koreans had to go to ideological training with their jobs and participate in something called self-criticisms. Going to quote from a book here, quote, One day a lecture might be about the struggle against U.S. imperialism. Another time it might be about Kim Il-sung's exploits against the Japanese. 
They would have to write essays on the latest news from the Workers' Party or analyze editorials in the newspapers. Some nights they would have to stay behind for mandatory meetings where in these sessions, these self-criticisms, groups of workers had to stand up and reveal to the group anything that they had done wrong. It essentially wiped out almost any possibility of resistance, end of quote. Speaking of newspapers, there were journalists in North Korea, and they had more access to information than ordinary people and are told to downplay anything positive about capitalist countries or South Korea. They focus on strikes, disasters, riots, murders. Another thing is that being accepted into the Workers' Party was a serious honor, and many children worked very hard to get in if they could through the Songbun caste system. Acceptance was pretty arbitrary, and again, it was based off of your conduct, your grades, but mostly what you inherited from your grandparents and parents. There were classifications and groups that kids would try to get into. So you wanted to be a part of the Young Pioneers. When you were a kid, you would wear a scarf. As a teenager, you wanted to get into the Socialist Youth League and wear a pin. Everybody was paid by the government and not, it wasn't all the same amount for each person. Doctors, for example, received more money than laborers, but even they didn't receive much. You were chosen for your career based off of your testing, regardless of any aspirations. I want to pause here because I think sometimes, at least here in the United States, there's a lot of pressure to pick your career. But sometimes I have to stop myself and think what an honor it is to be able to pick your career. That's not a possibility in North Korea. You were expected to see your assignment as an honor and be happy with what you got. The pay was pretty abysmal for the most part. It was more of an allowance than a salary. And if you wanted to buy a major purchase like a watch, you had to apply to your work unit to do it, even if you had the money. Food was completely subsidized. North Koreans were promised three bowls of rice every day. But this was never fulfilled. The public distribution system did give everyone a mixture of grains and amounts that actually were carefully calculated based on your rank and your work. So if you did hard labor like mining, you got more theoretically. Every house had a picture of the great leader and it had to be cleaned every single day with a special rag. And Kim's birthday was the biggest holiday of the year, still is. Each family would get extra rations of candy for this day. Birthdays actually aren't celebrated in North Korea since the individual is subservient to the collective whole. So when they got all this candy on Kim Il-sung's birthday, they would line up in front of the framed picture of him and say, thank you, thank you, dear father Kim Il-sung. In school, children were taught about Kim Il-sung's upbringing through films and textbooks, stamps, novels, paintings. In the textbooks, children were indoctrinated with in every possible way, including like in math. For example, This is an example of a math problem in North Korea. There are 10 American tanks, and the North Korean army destroyed five of them. How many are left? So anytime that they could sneak in something negative about the Americans or North Koreans taking out the Americans, they would do so. At school, kids were trained to rat out their parents. It was kind of a neighbor against neighbor, family member against family member. If they talked privately at home against the regime and your child turned you in, Obviously, the results were pretty horrific. We'll talk about that. You could trust no one, and therefore voicing dissatisfaction or dissent even in the walls of your own home was not a possibility. Proper communists didn't actually shop because, in theory, everything they needed was supplied by the government, which, of course, was because of the benevolent great leader. Kim Il-sung had created about as anti-consumerist of a culture as could exist in the 20th century. There were two department stores in Pyongyang. In the, in the 1950s to 1970s. And the merchandise was very standard issue. There was a black market, though, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
There also were very humble medical systems. There was poor equipment. Some doctors were expected to grow their own cotton, to make their own bandages, make their own herbal medicines. Being a doctor in North Korea during this time was a very difficult career to have. I could go on and on about the stories. And in my email this month, I will be sending you some great books to read or listen to, media you can watch to get a better idea of life in North Korea. But sometimes when we hear these stories, at least for me, I sometimes think, how could so many of the people be so gullible to this? Well, the thing is that many weren't. They just became downright depressed by their suppression. Many died early and young because of this. And being submissive was the only way to survive. And also when you consider that most of the children were being raised day in and day out in daycare centers from infancy since their mothers had to work in the factories and you know, for decades, every single song or book or article they ever read or movie they ever watched was to make the Kim family godlike, you can see how they would believe it. People believe all kinds of things these days, and that's with ample information available to them. So I can see how they absolutely could believe this, and I can also see how people who did know better could hold on to that but just keep their mouths shut and live in fear and want to just peaceably live. There were people who fought back and who knew what was going on. And here's one story to illustrate this. And I quote, During the grain purchases of 1954 to 1955, so again, pretty early on in the regime when the government is taking over grain purchases from farmers, grain was taken from peasants by force with the aid of threats. One peasant who had had his last bit of grain taken away could not restrain his indignation and went to the district's people's committee. A portrait of Kim Il-sung hung there. The peasant, pointing his finger at the portrait, loudly shouted, You are poorly informed about the condition of the people. You are tormenting the people in vain. He paid dearly for this. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment. End of quote. Also during this time from the 1950s to 1990s, there are quite a few stories of kidnappings. It's estimated that more than 200,000 South Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, Thais, Romanians were abducted by the North Korean government. They were used for all kinds of reasons, especially in training spies. Kim was very into film, and there's evidence that in 1978, he ordered the kidnapping of a famous South Korean actress when she was in Hong Kong. They also abducted her South Korean movie director husband, and they were captive for eight years and made nearly 20 films, which satisfied Kim to improve North Korea's film industry. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. 
On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So from the 1950s to the mid-1980s, North Koreans lived under a totalitarian regime, but they had basic food to eat, almost everyone was literate, most everyone was clothed. And in fact, in the 1970s, some reporters were allowed to visit North Korea and were pretty impressed by it. But a lot of that was due to the illusion of propaganda. The economy was inefficient, but it did work to some degree. Even with Kim Il-sung's talking about self-sufficiency, Juje, the truth is, though, that the Soviet Union and China absolutely helped it out. It was propped up with cheap oil, rice, fertilizer, equipment, trucks, cars, pharmaceuticals. Kim played China and the United or sorry, the Soviet Union, to see who could give him the most aid. In fact, he even got Stalin to send him an armored limousine. Also during this time, they began developing a nuclear arms program, which I'll go into in part three. Most foreigners were and still are only allowed in the capital city of Pyongyang, where the elites live. And it is said that they even train actors to put on a show for foreigners coming through. Even in 1955, a Soviet Korean made notes that the North Korean government wasn't informed on how the country was really doing and that they were not getting all of the correct information because people were fudging the numbers to keep the regime happy. And Kim Il-sung couldn't really handle criticism, it's said. So many stayed silent. It's even said that many of the works that Kim Il-sung is said to have written were actually written by other people. And many of his supporters even talked about not being able to hold private conversations about political topics, even amongst the core group. Things began to change in North Korea in the late 1980s. As we learned in the Russia episodes, the communist world began to change in the late 1980s when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union collapsed. Here, North Korea loses its old communist ally, which had supported it quite a lot. And China had also changed during the 1970s and 1980s under Deng Xiaoping, inviting more capitalist practices into the economy, working with the United States more, opening up to more international business. But Kim Il-sung and his son, Kim Jong-il, who was beginning to take on more and more responsibility and power as his father's health was beginning to fail— they were not willing to make the changes that China was making. And a lot of the wealth had been squandered on this massive military. They also were just beginning to develop nuclear weapons and had big dreams for it. So the timing of all of this is pretty horrible for them because their two best friends, China and Russia, were now much less interested in pouring money into this country with nuclear ambitions because they were busy fighting their own fires. And as a result, in the late in the early 1990s, North Korea's economy completely collapsed. The lights actually went out. After dark, the entire country of North Korea goes completely dark. If you look at a picture of the world at night, there are lights all over the world. But North Korea is completely dark and has been for nearly my entire lifetime. Even today in, 2000, or in 2022, it is said that only 26% of the North Korean population has access to electricity and that many households are restricted to two hours of power per day since priority is given to manufacturing plants. In this book, I've quoted it a few times because I think it's just essential reading. It's called Nothing to Envy by Barbara Demick. She does a fantastic job of explaining what this must have been like for North Koreans. And she tells the story of a Mrs. Song. And I'm going to quote for you. 
At first, the clues were small, barely noticeable. The light bulb that blinked out for a few seconds, then minutes, then hours, then days. The electricity became increasingly sporadic until you could expect only a few hours, a few nights, a week. The running water stopped. Mrs. Song quickly figured out that when the water came on, she'd better fill up as many buckets and pots as she could. But it was never enough for washing because the water pumps in the building ran on electricity, and the water ran out before the power came back on. She collected plastic jugs and took them down the block to a public pump. The electric tram that she took to work was operating infrequently, and when it came, it would be so overcrowded that people hung off the ladder on the back. So she walked. It took her one hour on foot to walk to work. End of quote. That's just one example of one woman as the lights go out and the economy collapses in North Korea. So again, during the 1990s, this power outage led to other changes in the economy. Most people would go to work, but then they'd stop getting paid. And then they'd work with no pay for a long time until finally their bosses told them to just go home. It's like everything screeched to a halt. This whole economy that had been run by this centralized government was no longer working. And with no money, how could people buy food? There was a massive food shortage. The government tried to expand acreage to grow more food through deforestation. This led to climate shocks all throughout the 1990s. And these two Kims, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, tried all kinds of things. They'd tell people to switch from rice to potatoes. They'd decide to raise ostriches. I mean, the country truly was, at this time, a hot mess. And the Russian and Chinese governments were getting annoyed that North Korea wasn't paying back any of its loans. So the economy spiraled even more. The famine of the 1990s was truly horrific. Like, it breaks my heart that in every single country I've covered so far, under its time in communism, it has suffered an absolutely massive famine that has caused, caused hundreds of thousands of people to die, millions of people to die for the most part. But this is the history, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about this famine. Because everything was collectivized and the state confiscated the whole harvest and then only gave portions back to the farmers, farmers began going hungry and started stashing away food whenever they could. They would neglect their fields to grow their own little gardens just to stay alive. And the people who lived in the cities, they were totally out of luck. Hungry people would scale utility poles to just pilfer bits of copper wire to swap for food. And groups of people would go out into the outskirts of the cities to try to collect these bruised pears that had fallen on the ground, just anything to eat. People began hunting frogs, just anything for meat. And there was actually a long time when there was no frogs due to overhunting. People began to turn to the black market and sell anything that they could just to survive. And even with the public distribution system of giving out food, there really had always been a black market in North Korea. It was illegal to buy and sell anything privately, but the rules were kind of fickle and not always where they kept. So even before the lights went out, people would quietly sell extra food or goods or vegetables grown in their own private gardens, which were allowed, surprisingly enough. But because in this famine, the true communists, the people who really believed in communism, they were the first ones to die. The ones who weren't willing to break the law to live, they died. Again, the North Korean government tried to explain the food shortages to people. And one point, people were told that the government was stockpiling food to feed the starving South Korean masses. They also were told that the United States had instituted a blockade against North Korea that was keeping out food. Eventually, the propaganda began to play on this North Korean sense of toughness and juje, and they would say, 
enduring hunger is becoming part of your patriotic duty. And billboards went up in Pyongyang that would tout this new slogan called, eat, let's eat two meals a day. Such rampant hunger that suicide became more common during this time and more ideal to starvation. Children began to be so small, they weren't growing correctly, abnormally so, small, small. They would scrounge for wild weeds, anything to fill the belly, even though it wasn't nutritious. And the medical care couldn't do much because they didn't have power. They didn't have electricity. So during this time, it was easy to tell a North Korean defector in China or South Korea because of their small size and they had these abnormally large heads from malnutrition. And the constipation was so terrible that children came to the doctors screaming. People died of all sorts of ailments long before starvation because their immune systems couldn't even handle the common cold. In 1994, so only a few years into the famine, Kim Il-sung dies at 82 years old from a heart attack, or so they say. Some people say he was killed by his son. But his son, Kim Jong-il, had been by his side working with him for many decades, and this put him now in the position of the new leader. The death of Kim Il-sung, who had, again, been leading since the late 1940s, was a huge shock to North Koreans. Every one of them, when interviewed by journalists, can remember where they were and what they were doing when they found out about his death. Kind of like how every adult or teen alive during 9-11 in the United States knows where they were when they found out about it. It was like, for the North Koreans, like the death of a god. The propaganda machine kind of took some time to figure out how to position it because how does a god die? There were even rumors that he hadn't really died and that if you mourned enough, he might return back to life. Over 3,200 statues were erected around the country shortly after his death. These are called the Towers of Eternal Life. Some North Koreans who really believed he was a god were so shocked that they wailed and wailed for days and there was extremely theatrical mourning. Others were so hungry and disillusioned that they really didn't care, but they had to fake it. And faking tears was a really common story in most North Korean defector stories because it became something of a patriotic obligation to grieve him. There was a 10-day mourning period, and the masses were asked to go to their city or village square and mourn at the statue. In fact, one book said that the lights were rarely switched on during the day because the electrical supply was diverted to keeping the Kim Il-sung statue illuminated around the clock. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let's pause and talk for a second about the leadership under Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. Again, these two had been side by side, working to the, together for a while, and both of their faces had been in every household for some time now. They kind of had a co-ruling. And I haven't spent a ton of time on the purgings and, and the inner workings of the top officials that happened during Kim Il-sung's time, but I think on a basic level, it's important to know that Kim was revered by the public, but there was plenty of higher-up elites who wanted to power grab. And he likely was, there were attempts to assassinate him many times throughout his life, making him more paranoid. He purged a lot of his closest people, just like Mao or Stalin did, in attempts to keep people close to him. There were lots of mysterious car accidents or poisonings that have been reported. We know most of this from advisors who left the country on official business and then defected or never went back and then continued to live in hiding. Kim Il-sung built himself many palaces during his rule and they lived in luxury, despite the poor quality of life of the masses. They had golf courses, stables for horses, garages full of bikes, 
luxury cars, shooting ranges, swimming pools, movie theaters, very big into them, film, hunting grounds. They had entourages of doctors, nurses, maids, valets, gardeners, masseurs, dancing troops. I mean, th- they just had so many people following them around. It was said that Kim Il-sung traveled with three different women all in their young 20s, and they were replaced every six months. He raced his collection of 100 imported limousines. They spent billions of dollars on festivals for the people on their birthdays, giving gifts to the Workers' Party, erecting monuments and statues. They were extremely rich, and Kim Jong-il grew up, this son grew up having servants, and people fawn over him, which obviously does something to a person. He loved expensive brands of clothes and watches, films, books, all foreign goods. It's even said that it's possible he was an alcoholic as in his younger years. I could go on and on about these stories, but I'll be honest and say that many of them made me feel super sick. A lot of the information on these two is hard to corroborate, but it does sound like Kim Jong-il, the son, the new leader starting in 1994 officially, It sounds like he rarely appeared in public, was more secretive than his father. He was very small and sensitive to that. Kim Jong-il seemed to work behind the scenes much more than his charismatic dad, did a lot of paperwork, didn't like meetings. He liked being in his office. He had multiple TVs, and he would watch a satellite news broadcast and then have several computers where he'd surf the Internet, And which, of course, almost everyone else in the country did not have access or even know that the Internet existed. They intentionally kept their country shut off from the rest of the world because they wanted absolute reverence. Mostly, it seems like Kim Jong-il didn't love to socialize. He was introverted, quite arrogant and self-centered. And he loved James Bond and Rambo, very into international entertainment, video games, American music, quite self-indulgent and had many mistresses. It's even possible that he kept his posterity a secret. That has become a tradition in the Kim dynasties. And he even had a, a wife who was the most famous North Korean movie actress. This is all while their people are starving, by the way. As one historian wrote, quote, The truth of the North Korean system is to come to understand, finally, that the isolated, cloistered royal family members themselves were foreigners to their own society. They furtively ventured out in one of Jong-il's 20 automobiles, including Cadillacs and Lincolns, or on foot after dark, or to uninhabited parks while everyone else worked, and observed this society like the aliens that they were. End of quote. Kim Jong-il's entire presidency from 1994 to 2011 was extremely rough times in North Korea. He essentially inherited a famine. While we'll go into more detail about that in the next episode, it is said that Kim Jong-il was not quite aware of how bad the economic situation was, as his dad had shielded him from a lot of it. But he did step into power at a very difficult time. The economy is dead as a doornail by 1995. In the next episode, we'll go into more detail about life during this time. So I'm going to end there. But let's sum everything up. Let's do a short summary. So first... The Korean War ends. North Korea is ruled by Kim Il-sung, who has a cult of personality. It is almost a religion. The Songbun caste system affects the lives of all North Koreans in every aspect of their lives. Collectivization of everything occurs. The tiniest details are managed by the government. Food shortages begin starting to happen in the 1980s, and they worsen throughout the decade. North Korea claims it doesn't need any help. But it's actually helped a lot by the Soviet Union and China until the end of the 1980s when the Soviet Union collapses. North Korea's economy fails, goes completely dark, horrific famines follow, and the effects on the average lives of North Koreans is tremendous. And in the early 1990s, the North Korean economy 
again, completely falls apart. Kim Il-sung dies. Kim Jong-il takes over. And the two of them and their family live extremely lavish lifestyles. There's the summary. All right, so where do I even start on my takeaways? This is super heavy stuff. I think the obvious takeaway is how different the theory of communism versus the reality of communism has been for North Korea. I think this is worth considering as we discuss communism more and more today. It's becoming quite popular to discuss. And I think it's important to recognize that the theory and the reality can be two totally different things. Take, for example, the Songbun system. I personally find caste systems very interesting. And ones that are integrated into a government are, are even more terrifying to me. The concept that if you defect or say anything against the system, your posterity for three generations will be affected. I mean, that's a motivating reason to stay loyal to a regime or at least not say anything. I think it's easy to get judgmental about people's choices. But when your family's on the line, I can understand why many would make the choices that they did. And it has helped me to be more grateful to live in a far less rigid social system that is not imposed by the government. I also want to say that I find it interesting that the government was able to get into people's homes by the way that they organized society and the way that they educated children. If innocent children are taught to snitch on their parents, this makes the home part of the state as parents cannot talk freely anywhere. And after studying North Korea, I have become much more aware of the privilege of speaking my own opinion whenever I want and wherever I want and not being afraid of being taken off to a labor camp. What an enormous privilege that is to be able to speak openly. I see people posting things on social media and I'm like, oh, how amazing it is that you can say that and not be worried about someone taking you off to a labor camp. All right. Part three is up and available. Let's listen to that next. It's going to take us from the rule of Kim Jong-il to modern times. I hope you give it a listen and let's go make the world a little wiser. 